My name is Michelle Morgan. Well, I can hear myself, so I hope you can hear me at the back. Right, we brought quite a few materials with us. The first are the handouts, which are available for this session. We've also produced this report, which is basically all of the research findings. It looks very thick and it feels very heavy, but it's big font. And basically are written so it's easy to read because my eyesight as I get older is not very good. But this really contains most of everything that we explored. And our aim was to explore expectations and attitudes in, through and out of every stage of applicants, students and employees. So it really is um, giving you a full picture, hopefully, of the postgraduate <coughs> master's experience. Here, if you haven't got the will to read through, are the briefing papers, which give you the headline findings of each theme and each area that we discovered. Now, all of these are available on the project website, and the information is actually at the back of not only the reports, but also the, um, the handouts. Now, this is hot off the press. This is actually supposed to be an electronic document, but I have brought some hard copies. Out of the project, we developed some good practice, good practical practice of how to improve the postgraduate employability experience. And what we've also got are colleagues from around the sector who've written opinion pieces, as well as people from business and industry. So we have some copies over there. Do, play, do please take them. I'm just getting over a sciatic injury, so I really don't want to take them back to Brighton. So what was the project about? I've been researching the postgraduate experience now for quite a while. And I started to realise there was a problem back about 2005, 2006. Can I just ask, I'm is hearing echoing? Yeah, yes. Is it echoey to yeah. you? Is, yeah. is it a volume yeah. issue that needs to be... Um, maybe if you just step this... Yeah. Right, okay. That's... Let's get around this. Okay. Is that better? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> is there a volume control on here? As in this podcast, I apologise. <laughs> so I'm hearing a ringing in my head. I don't see any volume. Right, okay. I will persevere. Right. So I put together the PET project and I went to a number of colleagues around the sector to actually ask if they wanted to get involved. It was a massive project and we were funded under the PSS Phase 1 and we had 11 institutions involved. Now, Andrea and Rachel, who are presenting, were actually key links and the key researcher for the Lincoln arm of the research. So also talk to them about PEP during the break because they will be able to give you some interesting and helpful information. What I've done with the slides today is I'm providing you with a lot of information, but I'm not going to talk to all of it. I'm going to give you the headline findings. What I wanted was the slides to stand alone so anyone who um, wasn't necessarily here can actually understand. So the slides look busy, but as I said, I won't be talking to them all. So what we're going to do is very, very quickly outline the sources that we use for the PET project. We're going to look at what the motivations were for postgraduate students in terms of undertaking postgraduate STEM study. Outline the acquisition skills that they expected to get. And also what the employers expected postgraduates to have when they actually came into the workplace. And then look at the bridging of the expectation disconnection between all the stakeholders. And we found that there were very, very noticeable 
um, differences in expectations. These are our partners. Okay, you can look at these a bit later in depth if you wish. But what I wanted to make sure there was diversity, not only in universities, but also in terms of different organisational bodies um, in education and also out of education. These are the aims and objectives. As I said, I won't go through this today, but we are going to present many of the findings to address the aims and objectives. Within our study, we did 13 surveys within the space of 10 months. So it was a real flat-out project. Now, we used really the three main ones, the Entry to Study Survey, the Finance Survey, and the Employers. You can see the Entry to Study Survey was here. And we very much designed it so that it was a journey. The students completed it as a journey. We took them through their prior experience and then what they expected to get out of. It was so well received, something like 90% of all the completers said that they felt all postgraduates should be required to complete it. And as a result, the AGA have taken it into their portfolio of surveys. <coughs> the finance survey. This was really, really critical because we wanted to try and understand the financial difficulties. Now, what I would say is, and the frustration from my point of view, was that we could only get the project to run covering the students the pre the £9,000 entry point. And that was really, really frustrating because, frustrating because we wanted to kind of see the impact of the 9K of those going into postgraduate. And we're still not really going to get a good understanding of that because obviously we've had the scholarships last year, which is going to skew the impact. So it's, it's, it's very hard for us to know the actual issues surrounding these groups of students. The employer survey. This was probably one of the most challenging surveys I've ever done in my entire career, and I've done quite a few. Trying to get the engagement was really, really hard. We had a long survey, and yes, there were quite a few questions. But what we have done, and here are the handouts, of those detailed information, we created case studies. Okay, so you can take those away and read them, and hopefully it will flesh out some of the similarities and differences between the employees. So we did a short survey, and we did a bit better. We got 64 responses, we went on to Facebook, we did everything to try and get the engagement, and it was really, really challenging. And I would argue that that actually is a finding in itself. So although the sample is small, what I would say is we have found very, very similar findings from other research that is coming out. And you can see the breakdown of the ownership of the, of the company and also how they classified their organisation. And the bulk were a commercial organisation. <coughs> were, these were the respondents and, and the sector they came from. So let's look at the motivations. What was overwhelmingly the main reason was to, employ, employ, um, to improve employment prospects. It was astoundingly obvious when we actually started to look at the data. And this is something that came out time and time again of all the data. What we also found was that different groups had maybe very slightly different reasons. So for example, those who were studying part-time, they wanted it to progress in their career. The EU respondents said they did it because they were interested. Those between 26 and 40, it was about getting extra skills. For those under 25, it was about getting a job. So the different motivations for the different groups, there were noticeable differences. Top reasons for choosing the university. Course content, location of institution, and also reputation of chosen area. 
Now this is where we start to get into a more tricky area. We only had one Russell group in the research project. But this is what we found. Of their respondents, it wasn't location at all that was an issue. Location was an issue for the respondents who went to the, the post-92 universities. And so it raises the question, is also part of choosing the university about your background and where you live? And I'll go on to talk about social class, because we found social class to be really, really quite impactful in the findings. So, let's look at the previous encounter with university. Basically, what we found is if you studied a post, if you studied prior to your postgraduate studies at a Russell group, you were more likely to be from social class one. And for those studying at a Russell group, i.e. this was the University of Edinburgh, 46% were from social class one. Whereas for the other, from the other respondents from the other universities, it was a lot lower. So we did find, and as I said, we've only got one Russell Group University in here, but it did appear that the Russell Group recruited students from certain social classes. And I think that is not a surprise. I think actually we've got quite a bit of data, especially showing that that happens at undergraduate level. But what it does appear is that what's happening at undergraduate level is being moved up to postgraduate. The intentions to funding your postgraduate studies and this is quite important because social students from social classes one and two will more like to be funded by their parents rather than using salary or savings and respondents from the lower social classes will more like to rely on alternative methods of funding rather than parents as you can see this slide shows the respondents in terms of social class and generational status First generation being the first in your family. Second, you've had parents who've also been. Now, what you can see is, as the social class goes down, generational status for first generation goes up. And this is quite important data, and it is reflected in the Wakeling and Hamden Thompson report that's come out back in 2013, I believe it was. And what we did find was that how you are funding your studies impacts on your choices. So the lower social classes were more likely to study part-time. And for those in the lower social classes, fees were much, much valued and considered more important than those in social classes one and two. So basically, the way you funded certainly appeared to impact on how you decided to take, undertake postgraduate study. One of the other handbooks that I've got, and it's very, very well worth reading them, is this. This was an unexpected document. And as part of the project, we, we gave randomly allocated fee scholarships across the nine English universities. And basically, what we wanted was that the applicants had to live locally. They had to be British. Because what we knew was that we've got a real problem with UK domiciled undertaking postgraduate study. And before anyone asked, we had it all legally ratified, checked out, and we put everything on the website, on the application process. And the reason why we targeted people who lived locally or worked locally was that if you're going to look at sustainability of the postgraduate market, 
that is one area where we really do need to explore. Um, I got a, an email from one of the fee scholarship students saying, this has fundamentally changed my life. So I sent an email out to all the scholarship students across the nine English universities, because obviously the Scottish and the Welsh who participated, bless them, they funded their own participation because they're not, they don't come underneath the English funding authority. And out of the 300, we got some of the most astounding and amazing and wonderful stories. It may have been the gin that made me cry, but, and I'm not going to read some of them because some of them really are very, very emotional. But if you want to know how it can actually change someone's life, I'm going to read you one story. I'm a 39-year-old mature student. A brief history of my journey is the following. After a marriage breakup, I was left unemployed and a lone parent. Having worked since I left school, my decision to originally attend university as a mature student was to help create a better life for my son and myself. As I've been out of education for so long, 20 years, I had to do an H&D and then a top-up degree at my local university. It's just what I was looking for and it increased my confidence and broadened my mind as well as making some great new friends. After I graduated, I looked for work, but to no avail. So I started my own IT business. When the opportunity to do my MSc came through the project, I jumped at the chance to be able to increase my knowledge bank, enhance my career prospects and my education. When graduating, it was inspiring to see the ladies and gentlemen getting up on stage with their different hats compared to the mortar boards of the graduates. With the assistance of the project, I'm able to afford to do the master's degree. I also hope at some point to go on to do a PhD after completing my master's. And it's full of stories like this. People who, you know, have lost parents at young age, and education has changed their lives. The other thing that I think we started to realise as we started to analyse the data in terms of the impact on funding was that many of the students through the focus groups started to say that I had to move home because it made my study more feasible. I didn't have the money to go on, so I had to take time out to save up. And they were mainly the lower social class students. The one problem that we've got at postgraduate level is we don't nationally keep data to be able to drill down and really understand what's going on. We don't collect social class data or generational status data institutionally. Some may, but it's not something that's quite common. We don't have the data via a postgraduate admissions clearinghouse like UCAS. So to really get a handle and a grasp of what's going on is incredibly, incredibly difficult. And we also collect data in different ways per university. So it makes everything quite challenging. We asked what students were looking forward to when starting their studies. And you can see we've got a number of themes that kind of came out of the qualitative comments that were left. But importantly, employability was quite important. And it's the type of things that the students in the focus groups, nine months in their, six months into their studies, demonstrated frustration about. Because what they were promised was workshops in employability, <coughs> opportunities to network with employers. Yes, getting a professional qualification, but gaining contacts and meeting people in the industry in which they're doing their postgraduate qualification. And across all of the universities, it was a frustration that this was not happening and their perception wasn't being, of what they'd expected was not being met. When we actually looked at what they hoped 
to improve their skill base, you can see, better prepare them for employment. When we ask them about the skills that they felt were really, really important, you can see that work experience and business awareness was very, very low down. And yet, time and time and time again, from our data from the employers, which yes, although it was quite a small sample, but it is being reflected elsewhere, work experience was considered absolutely critical and key. So of course, this then all brings up the idea of, do we have to start thinking about the structure of our master's degrees and starting to build in maybe employment, practical employment, work placement experience? The students felt that the media expectation would be that they would get a job. And this was especially the case amongst 25 year olds. In all fairness, for those who were older, it was about maintaining their position in the workplace and getting the skills that maybe could give them the incremental promotion. But for those under 25, they genuinely thought that it would be the key to success. You know, or as I say, the gold ticket to Willy Wonka's factory. Now those expectations are coming from somewhere, and that's something we'll touch upon at the very end. Future impact. Many wanted to enter a specialist role in their field. So, the financial, in the finance survey, we actually explored what they felt the financial benefit would be. You see 43.8% earn more money. And this is really, really important for us, because if there is you know, this expectation, you do a postgraduate degree to earn more money, and that does not happen, that has all sorts of implications for us. The other thing is, interestingly, that people had this lovely idea of undertaking postgraduate study, but they'd underestimated the cost. And as their study went on, they started to realise it was proven to be more costly than they originally anticipated, and they hadn't built in for that cost. And what that does say to us is that that's quite an important factor for those who withdraw, potentially. And we actually did actually get that. Finance for those who withdrew, or who didn't even come and enroll, even though they accepted the place, was very, very critical. I mean, you've got the student here. I now believe that high university fees over are the major reasons why some students decide to under, you know, decide not to undertake postgraduate studies. Therefore, fee levels are hugely important. And we are in a very, very challenging position where we have funding cuts, and yet how do we deliver quality courses? Something's gonna suffer. And the, you know, we also have to understand that if students thinking they're gonna occur high levels of debt, then they expect, their expectation will be, I need to earn more money to cover that debt when I graduate. So we have major issues facing us, major challenges. It can increase course dissatisfaction. At the moment, PTES is voluntary, and it's not, doesn't create leave tables as it does undergraduate level. The increasing levels of debt impact on expectation attitudes. We've seen an increase in complaints at postgraduate level, and it's not necessarily a surprise. If we're not careful, we can lose our brand loyalty. Very, very hard to actually develop it, work up and put it into place. Very, very easy to lose, especially with social media. 
you know, students using Facebook to comment, Twitter, Instagram, all sorts of new methods of communication. And it's very here and now. If you see a really, really poor lecturer, you know, all you've got to do is record it and post it. So we have to be very mindful of these pressures on us. And of course, it can encourage the continued decline in numbers. And that's the situation that we face. Even with the phase two, which many universities participated in, which provided £10,000 scholarships, which universities had to match funds. The government provided £5,000 and the university had to provide the other £5,000. We are still getting a decline in applications. It's fractional, but it is still happening. But since 2010, when we reached our peak, nationally the decline has been quite major. And it's hardly surprised when you think this is potentially the debt that students could incur. So you can see, if you do a three-year undergrad and an added master's, your debt potentially, if you're not working, could be 81,000. Add on an MBA, you could be looking in excess of 93,000. So it's an excessive amount of money and it is a major, major investment. Now at this stage, I'm going to do a quick mic pass over with Inesh, who's going to talk to you about the employment. employers, companies, SMEs, um, if they employed master's qualified candidates to work with them. And of our tiny sample, but it was quite representative of the sector, um, the majority, 65%, thank you, Sean, for the assistance, said that they employed master qualified uh, students. Um, and then we asked these employers which skills uh, were the main reasons for employing these students. And um, the skills related with technical knowledge, the ones that are in a way embedded in higher education curriculum, were the ones who companies agreed or sometimes um, pointed out as being, one, was, as being the most important skills um, to justify employing master's qualified students like special, um, specialist knowledge, technical skills, or high-level analytical thinking. However, um, we need to take attention to the challenges of, of our century, of the new economy, and so employers uh, want um, employees with a broader vision of, the, of their jobs, not only their technical skills, but, all, but also they, they need to have employees equipped with soft skills, interpersonal skills that um, will enable them to, to be more um, active and uh, um, more able to, to, keep, to keep up to the challenges that the sectors uh, face. So when asked about the importance of workplace professionalism, of communication skills and new ideas helping to innovate, and the employers were not so clear about 
having master qualified students matching these kind of skills. And when asked about high caliber candidates' future leadership potential and commercial awareness, that are the kind of skills that are, are not directly teached at universities, students are, um, employers are totally, well, most of them in disagree of, of the importance of having a master's degree to, to have these this skills. Um, we also asked uh, companies about the issues they faced um, with their master qualified employer employees and they frequently complain about limited work experience, inability to demonstrate required skills, or um, many of them also said that students or um, master qualified students had very narrow focused set of, of knowledge, so then they wanted a broader vision of, of the skills instead of this focused experience. Um, other issues they faced with students, well, sometimes seeing realistic expectations to work in the company. So but this is not that clear as the previous ones. Okay, and very rare to have graduate, uh, master graduate um, employee, employees with knowledge too wide. That was a very rare issue to these companies. Um, we also wanted to understand um, why certain companies didn't um, employ master qualified employees and the majority of them said that it's not relevant for the business but this is not the idea that that students have when going to, to a master's degree they want to, to be specialists and they want to be relevant in their field of study and have a job in in that area um, some companies i think too said that, that their company was too small to to employ this this kind of, of candidates and the other one, to provide another reason, said that experience was more important than, than the qualification. And it was nice to have master qualified employees, but it was not essential. And if you look at the case studies, we asked uh, companies about their shortlisting criteria when employing a new candidate, and the first one for everybody was work experience. So more important than the qualified, the qualification, the paper. Um, nothing can come back to you, Shell. Sorry about this again. Let's try it out. Okay, I, I hope I'm not creating static. I think the other thing which was very important as well, when you think that 99% of businesses in the UK are SMEs, for them, employing somebody is a really, really long-term strategic decision. It's not something that they will just do on a whim. It has to be strategically built in. So it's a very much a very long plan decision. And when you've got, employee, you've got employees coming in expecting salaries of maybe 30, 35,000, when the director and the owner of the SME is only drawing 18,000 pounds per year, that is a real challenge. And that's where they very much spoke about the, um, the expectation difference uh, they have unrealistic expectations. So how do we bridge the disconnect with the different stakeholders? And I think what we're dealing with is there is that perception of qualification outcome between students, universities and employers of the actual outcome. And what very much came out was students, when they embark on postgraduate studies, want real models, not role models. And Jane and I were sitting down, Jane was part of the second largest consortium 
from Manchester, and we were sitting down talking about this, and she coined this term, real, real models, not role models. And basically, what the student said to us is, look, we're not undergraduates. This is a real strategic decision in undertaking postgraduate study. I want to know the pitfalls, I want to know the difficulties, I want to know the cost, but unless I can actually do that, I cannot balance, make on balance, that decision to go and do postgraduate study. So that's very, very important. And what was really, really intriguing, and I'm not sure if Andrea and Rachel found this, but talking to undergraduates who went straight on to postgraduate, their attitude about what they expected at postgraduate level fundamentally changed. They stopped acting like an undergraduate, and their expectations as, post, as a postgraduate were quite, quite notably higher and different. How many of us, as you walk around the university, have nice posters of our alumni who are CEOs? I think we all do it. It's all part of the marketing spin, and that's great. But not everybody who does a postgraduate course can actually go on to be a CEO. And so it's about the honesty. This is what the students were saying. We want real models, not role models. We want postgraduates who are halfway through who are saying to us, do you know something? This is really hard. But if you do this and you do that, I promise you, you'll survive. You know, at three o'clock in the morning, if you wake up in a, in a, in a massive sweat thinking I'm going to draw because I really can't cope, don't panic. Go and speak to somebody. And you need those real models. And I think also, and people don't want to hear this and people don't like it, but we have as a sector to take responsibility for the credential inflations of the qualifications. The evidence is just not there to say that we are desperately in need of postgraduate qualifications. What we're in need of is high-level skills. Can that only be delivered through a postgraduate qualification? And I think that's part of the hard discussion and the questions that we've got to ask ourselves. And is it really realistic that the promise that we make to those undergraduates who've got no work experience, postgraduate qualification is your key to success? Is that really true? And actually, does our marketing team have to start taking responsibility for maybe the way we do market our products, our courses? I think it's time that we need to ask really difficult questions and involve what we do. And also, are our courses really fit for the 21st century? Years ago, postgraduate qualifications used to be for continuing professional development. It wasn't just a qualification to get a job. And what we appear to have done is move the problem up from undergraduates to postgraduates. And maybe the thing that we need to start thinking about is, do we need to re-establish the undergraduate qualification as the gold standard and make sure that postgraduate is really about continuing professional development? We tracked the scholarship students who were given scholarships and doing full-time study. Because by the time the project had finished, we were able to track this group six months on to find out what they were doing in their destinations. The part-time students are still continuing into their second year. What we found is of all the scholarship students, 50% were in paid employment. And what was really quite interesting is that 55.9% felt that their postgraduate qualification wasn't actually a requirement for their job, but they did feel it gave them an advantage. And for those, 17% who were working for um, with a company, they had actually worked with them before 
or have got an internship or some work experience through their course. So the importance of previous work experience was quite important. The other thing that we found, which was I found quite surprising, was out of this group, only 4.3% used university career services to help them find a job. And here you can see that 66% were on a permanent open-ended contract. Can I just say, those who worked overseas um, were actually on full contracts, which, you know, it's, it's a massive thing to have to move overseas if it's only for a six-month contract or for less than a year. So we did find contractual differences between the different disciplines, and these are up here. I'm acutely aware of the time, so I am getting through it. Um, and interestingly, 17% said their salary was less than before they started their postgraduate studies. And 46, sorry, 48% said their salary was higher. So for this group of students, postgraduate study had been a benefit. And they did feel, generally, that the postgraduate um, study had been valued for money. However, when, they, when we asked them, they said if they'd had to pay for it, they didn't think it would have been so much value for money. The fact that they actually got scholarship to pay for it, for them, enabled them to look at it in a slightly different way. But the debt levels are still quite high, and you'll see these in the briefing papers. Okay? So, good practice. I've given you a load of links here. Some of these are in the good practice guide, so please do look at them or contact the individuals. So the questions for the sector. We have got a declining population of under 18 year olds until 2020. Now the problem for us is that the pull through into undergraduate and then into postgraduate means that we have a smaller pool. So unless we create and increase that pool, we're gonna face declining numbers. It's, 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 a, it's a mathematical issue that we're gonna to have to address. So we may have to create markets. And the question is where do we create those markets? The criticism that I have of the sector, and someone who's been involved in the postgraduate, involved in the student experience movement for many, many years, is that we grew rapidly, and we didn't pay attention to why we were growing, and what we did, and how we delivered what we did. And that's a major problem. Of course, we only started to really address it when student numbers started to rapidly decline. So it's time to actually look at the experience and what is happening. Emma Pollard from the Institute of Employment Studies says, undergraduates are inexperienced shoppers, whereas postgraduate students are savvy consumers. They expect more, and you will very much find this from the findings reported in the PEP project. So what is the purpose of postgraduate study? And what's the purpose of HE? Huge questions. Is it to create employees for the marketplace? Is it for further study and actually creating and educating future academics? So these are kind of issues that we really do need to openly discuss. Do we go to niche versus generic research versus learning and teaching? Do we go down a vocational route? Does that depend on the type of institution we are? Where are competitors? This is what worries me most. We have international competitors who are stealing our thunder. 
And all the time that we maybe are not sure of our direction, they're actually getting a foot in the education market. And for me, when I actually look back at what's happening in the last 10 years, I feel it's a bit like the Industrial Revolution. We led it, and then we sat on our laurels, we didn't change quickly enough, and everyone took over. And this is what worries me. When you have international countries doing masters in English at a fraction of the cost, where do we place ourselves in that market? And these are really, really tough questions that we need to ask. I'm not saying I've got the answers, but we, got, we need to ask the questions. And it's about the attitudes towards the study. Do we have to, you know, realistically just say, look, we are a really, really good institution at doing this. We can't try competing and being equal in terms of that with this institution. So it's about playing to our strengths. And can we be a jack of all trades master of none? And as I said, I go back to, do we re-establish the undergraduate as the primary qualification? And do we actually retract the market? Can we actually go on? Retraction is something that's being forced on us. Retraction would be better if we strategically drive it. Now, the other thing that came out of the project was we also investigated integrated degrees. Now, for those of you who are not aware of an integrated degree, it's a three-year undergraduate with a master's, but it's all basically delivered at undergraduate level. And the huge, huge worry was that integrateds were increasing. And was that impacting on postgraduate study? Integrated degrees in the UK are increasing, but when we actually did the research amongst the nine universities, the students didn't do it to try and circumvent the funding. They did it because parents were encouraging them and they could get a master's at it. Now the reality is, if you're going to have integrators growing, you're going to take them out of the traditional master's pool. So my argument is, why are we not taking that final year of integrated and actually putting it into the postgraduate master's figures? Because if we did that, actually our figures wouldn't look maybe as bad as they are because it's still a master's. But now that the postgraduate loan scheme has come in, there's no circumventing of funding. So does it matter if we increase our integrated offerings, especially amongst the arts, humanities and social sciences? Is that a possibility? Because the one thing especially that employers have said is the integrated degree, especially with employment experience, is very beneficial and it's quite popular and they like it. So, as it's the Bard's birthday, I leave you with a changed quote, and that quote is, to change or not to change, that is the question. Whether it is wise or foolish to suffer just the slings and arrows of our weak economy and declining participation, or to make change in a sea of troubles, and by opposing them, end them. Thank you.